Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. Why is white supremacy growing in the United States? Let's get to the bottom line. This year started with a big bang, literally, when supporters of former President Donald Trump decided that they had to save America and stop the steal of last year's election. People from all over the country descended on the Capitol, and over time, it became clear that many of the writers have ties to white nationalist and right-wing extremist groups. A couple of weeks later, Joe Biden became the first U.S. president in history to call out white supremacy as terrorism in an inauguration speech. That was historic. But what has his administration done since then to stem the tide of fear and hate that brings these groups together? What's the future of America's right-wing militias, the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and all the rest? And whether they're neo-fascist or they're neo-Nazi or they're anti-Muslim or anti-Jewish, KKK, neo-Confederate, or all of the above, is the network that makes up white nationalism in America getting stronger? Today, we're talking with Kathleen Ballou, who teaches U.S. history at the University of Chicago and has written several books on the white power movement. Most recently, she co-edited A Field Guide to White Supremacy, which has just come out. And Wes Bellamy, former vice mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, and co-chair of Our Black Party. He's the author of When White Supremacy Knocks, Fight Back, How White People Can Use Their Privilege and How Black People Can Use Their Power. Listen, it's so great to be with you. Kathleen, congratulations on the release of this edited volume in this book. It's very powerful essays. And let me just start with you and just ask the question, because I also know it comes packed with the issue of how we in the media should be looking at this question and defining white supremacists. What are you hoping to achieve with the release of this book? Where does white supremacy stand in this nation as you see it? So this book is aimed at a particular problem, which is that most of our focus on racial violence treats only one part of a complex system of white supremacy. This book outlines the relationship between racial violence, the ingrained legal systems that make it difficult to convict people of racial violence, and the remaining individual racist belief that still permeates our political mainstream. All of those are interrelated but distinct. So when we talk about white nationalism, that's a different thing than what we might think of as white power or white supremacy, but they're all part of the same social problem, and this book sets that out. Well, you have a chapter in this book saying there are no lone wolves, uh, the white power movement in war. And as you define white power, and as we have, because we do in the, in the media, we do talk about lone wolves, what are we getting most wrong when, when people in my seat are, are trying to frame this discussion, trying to bridge to folks watching this to understand it? I'd just be interested in your insights and trying to kind of frame this for folks. So lone wolf is a category partially invented by the white power movement to direct our attention away from what it is, which is an organized social movement that brought together neo-Nazis, Klansmen, skinheads, militiamen, and others, beginning right after the Vietnam War and um, steadily building up to the present moment. This is the same thing we have been dealing with for decades, if not generations. And what we get when we think about this as a problem of lone wolves are stories about the Pittsburgh Tree of Life shooting as being about anti-Semitic violence, the Charleston shooting being about anti-Black violence, the El Paso shooting being about anti-Latino violence, Christchurch being about anti-Islamic violence. And certainly they are those things. But all of those acts were carried out by white power, ideologically driven gunmen who write the same language in their manifestos, who sometimes share social ties, and who are seeking to accomplish the same thing with their violence. When we connect those stories 
we find that these coalitions, um, that coalitions can arise between these communities who have something in common, who might not have known that otherwise. Wes Bellamy, um, you and I have spoken about this before. You were, you were right there in Charlottesville. I mean, I want to remind people, and I hope you can share with them the, the emotion of that time. And this week, the civil trial for some of those involved with Unite the Right, um, this, this uh, white nationalist and friends uh, gathering in Charlottesville, the violence, a death that occurred. I'd just be interested. Charlottesville was the epicenter for, for you know, was one of the epicenters, but it really mattered in terms of uh, a discussion of race and justice and inequality and history in this country. And I'd just love for our audience to understand from you, you were vice mayor, you know, what, what, is, what went on then? And I, I'm just going to ask you bluntly, have we accomplished much since then? Well, one, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you all. And I think there's a couple of things in which we have to keep in mind. America is rooted in white supremacy. There's a lot of us that like to pretend as if that is not the case. We like to pretend as if we're this grandiose country that doesn't have these fundamental values. But that's just the fact of the matter. And my grandmother would always say, you can't get to the truth of something if you're not willing to face the truth. And the truth is that our country is founded and based off of one group of people believing that they are superior to other groups of persons. And because of that, you see the manifestation of a wide variety of ideologies permeating throughout our country initially, or excuse me, substantially speeding, speaking to people trying to maintain power. So once we understand and we are truth about that, tell the truth about that, then we can move forward. Our country has made some strides. However, we still have a long way to go. As you saw in Charlottesville, people being very articulate and very distinct and blunt with their belief that they were coming back to take what was theirs. I was the only black person on the council at the time, and because many of them believed that I was leading this effort to remove Confederate statues and changing the fabric of what they believed to be one of the true American cities, the home of Thomas Jefferson, they wanted to come and take back what was theirs. Subsequently, since then, we've seen white people across the country truly come to face and understand that we have a lot of work to do. I hope that white people are now starting to understand the plight of black people and people of color and other marginalized groups when we say that these racist things, both overt and covertly, have been happening. Now there's a belief and a push to believe in such. But now what we have to do is do exactly what you're doing, and as you just described as well as Ms. Kathleen. We need white people and our allies and accomplices to use their privilege and speak out about these things. And then people of color have to use our power to say that we're going to not shut up, we're not going to be quiet, we're going to use our voice, and we're going to rally with those who want to fight with us to bring forth a more equitable, not 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 speaking specifically about equality, but from a more equitable perspective to our country, our states, our localities, and so forth. Thank you. That's so powerful. Let me just ask you both, and, you know, Kathleen, I'll lead, lead with you. You know, I, I'm sort of interested in, in what models are out there, if there are any, you know, to go to Wes's point that, that, you know, given the founding of this country, given where we're at, a lot of folks see a change in the framing of this country, a change in the basic understanding, or even education and history about this. I have to tell you, I did not know about the Tulsa 1921, uh, really, genocide in Tulsa, Oklahoma, even though my parents were from that area. And so we kind of mm. look at that, and there's sort of historical realization that we have to come in, that I'm just wondering, how can we, with people who felt they weren't there, that wasn't them, why are we talking about something about the legacy and founding of this country? How can we actually get models where there is what Wes talked about, understanding, appreciation of what does matter, but yet people can still work together and move forward. I, you know, Kathleen, do you have insights on that? 
Absolutely. I think, you know, the United States is not unique in its history of racial inequality and racial violence. Many nations have struggled with these problems. Um, but the United States is quite unique in how little we have done by way of public conversation and truth and reconciliation with that history. Um, we've had no national TRC process. We've had very little in the way of museum building and memorialization. And one thing that folks might want to remember is that when we think about you know, the radical promise of the United States, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That was never meant for all of us. Mm. That was laid out for white, property-owning, free men at the beginning. And only through coalition building, organization, and working together have people come together to demand the extension of that pros promise to more and more groups of women, first to non-property-owning white men, then to people of color, then to women. This is a gradual process. It has not happened through magnanimity. It's happened because people have come together and organized for their own inclusion in that project. And they can do that again. Wes, what are your thoughts can on I, that? Yeah, please. Yeah, so, so I think that there are specific examples across the country in which we've seen municipalities be able to move the needle forward. Specifically, when we think about what's, what's transpired in Charlottesville, when I was on council, we wrote, I wrote something called the Equity Package, which was nearly $4.5 million in resources provided to underserved communities. When you look at places like Evanston, Illinois, in which they have their reparations bill, you hear, you hear places like Asheville, North Carolina, talking about moving forward with a quote-unquote reparations package and things of, those nature, things of that nature. We have to look at those specific localities, excuse me, models on the local level, when you have very targeted, specific budget allocations and resource reallocations to disadvantaged groups and folks who have uh, had to wear the brunt of the, the, the just the malice of specifically white people and people who have led this country for so long, then that's how we move the needle forward. But in addition to that, when we develop something like Our Black Party, which isn't, quote unquote, a, a third party, it's essentially a platform to help black folk understand that there's nothing wrong with us centering ourselves in the political landscape, just as you see the Jewish folks doing, the uh, Irish folks doing, the Latino community doing. White people and people as a whole need to support these efforts. The mobilization of marginalized groups in order to bring forth tangible uh, outcomes and things that we're looking for from a policy side as well as a budgetary side is what's needed in the immediate. Furthermore, when you hear black folk or when you hear the Latino community or you hear marginalized groups speaking about their experience, we need white people to be willing to listen to them first and foremost and then use their privilege to bring forth tangible solutions. We can't do this alone. It's going to take all of us to be able to work together, and we are doing so. So let's not just believe that nothing has transpired and that there's nothing that's happened because nothing in this community or this country will change with that mindset. We have examples. Obviously, there's more work to be done, and I believe that we're going to do it. So let's keep getting to work. Well, thank you. Well, Kathleen, I guess my question is, this is the United States of America. How can these groups thrive? So part of the reason that we have struggled so much to face down the power movement. And here again, I'm talking about specifically organized overt racist violence against the state and against people uh, on the ground. Um, that is partly because of lack of resources, lack of understanding at the surveillance community level, lack of legislative instruments, lack of appropriate jury instruction, and this narrative of the lone wolf that gets repeated in the media that has not directed public 
attention at this problem. I think that the grain of hope here is that since Charlottesville, a lot of people have been paying attention, and that's exactly what this movement does not want. Um, so although we see this movement dramatically increasing in size and in its reach into the mainstream, um, as we came to grips with on January 6th, I hope, um, we also see a turn towards solving the problem. And I think that this is happening across many levels of our society, ranging from the amazing grassroots work um, and local political work um, that Wes was just talking about, um, up to things like the DHS and the FBI directing surveillance resources towards this problem, which this has never happened before in the long history of this movement. Um, so there are reasons to be optimistic. I think that the thing that people have to understand is that this is bigger than simply um, a problem of individual belief systems. Um, we might think of white supremacy as a fence, and racial violence and white power activism is one plank in the fence. And individual racism was involved in the construction of the fence. Mm. but And people still come along repairing the fence and propping up the fence. But this fence is here now, and we could think of incarceration rates, um, maternal, maternal health outcomes are disparate by race, wealth acquisition is disparate by race, property ownership, all of these are planks in the fence. Hmm. If we walk away from the fence, if nobody else is still constructing it, that fence is still standing. That's not enough. We have to take the fence down. That's a step beyond simply not believing in white supremacy anymore. People have to take action if they'd like to confront this problem. And there's no way to deal with something like attacks um, waged by white power activists without looking at this whole system. And I just add that in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is one great example of a local community taking on a TRC process, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Right. Um, the reason that there was an issue there that was so big that the local community was, was impacted for generations has to do with not only the racial shooting that happened there, the racist shooting that happened, but the failure right. of our legal system multiple times to bring those people to justice. And that's because of white supremacy writ into those other systems. Well, Wes, you know, one of the worries that some people feel, and they have this, this notion of white, white replacement theory, that if, it, that if you're going to diversify, then, you know, it's a zero-sum game between races. And I got to tell you, I've interviewed CEOs all around this country, all of whom uh, that I've talked to are trying to basically say we need to commit to education of black and brown communities. We need them in our uh, corporate leadership. We need them on our board. And we need them working in our company. And we need to broaden the aperture and bring those folks in. And I have to tell you, none of them talk about it in this white replacement theory way. But people have this fear. When you go into a community and you go in to talk to them about how we get this right, what, what, how do you bring them along so that they understand that at the end of the day we're going to be a much healthier nation? Uh, with real diversity, and, and it's going to be everyone wins. How do, how do you do that? Well, well, initially, it's a perspective and thought that you go into, go into this understanding that this is, quote-unquote, a marathon. This is not a sprint. You don't change a perspective of individuals, nor do you get people to truly understand this in just a day or a week or, or even a couple of months, for that matter. This is something that requires a great deal of patience. I truly believe that we have to be patient with people, but impatient with progress and consistent in regards to how we continuously and consistently try to move the needle forward day by day. Some folks are going to get it faster than others, and that's okay. We just have to be consistent in the manners in which we continue to push. Showing tangible examples 
examples of how even on a local level, whether it be your school systems, whether that be with health disparities, whether that be with economic disparities, housing disparities, and so forth, how laws have benefited one particular group of persons and how they've essentially banished and uh, derived and derailed other groups of people with tangible examples, that helps people. But again, I think within all of this, we have to be willing to use one of two things. People who are, quote-unquote, in positions of power, i.e. more times than not white people, they have to be willing to use that power to bring forth tangible change. And those who are marginalized, or excuse me, use their privilege to bring forth uh, tangible change. And those who are marginalized have to understand that we still have a level of power. When you look at local elections, statewide elections, federal elections for that matter, it's important for us to pay attention, elect the right people, bring forth policy and tangible, excuse me, tangible policy examples with our demands, and then see to it that they're sought through. When you're educating people on how to do those things, again, it takes time. I talk about that in my book, uh, When White Supremacy Knocks, that this is a marathon, as I alluded to. And because this is going to take so long, we need people who are willing to get in shape and do the work. And I hope that you all will join us in doing so. When you hear, Vice, uh, when you hear President Trump's voice, Kathleen and Wes, saying... They're very fine people on both sides. Very fine people on both sides. I, I'm interested in, in, in that framing. And, Kathleen, just from your perspective, what damage was done uh, in the, that framing? And is it fixed now that Biden has a different take? Or is there just so much more that, that you're waiting to see done after Biden's uh, inauguration remarks? So Trump's remarks about very fine people on both sides, quote unquote, after Charlottesville, um, have been a little bit misinterpreted. I think he meant that to be there were regular protesters and then there were Nazis and Klansmen. And he was trying to distinguish between sort of the, the far alt-right and the regular protesters. The problem is, as we saw on January 6th, that those groups come together to make violent action happened. And also in, Charl in, in Charlottesville, that was a dramatic mischaracterization of an organized rally mm. by the alt-right with the intent of violent action and, and violent um, outcomes, um, it seems to us now, at least. So um, I think that the whole of Trump's record here, though, is deeply problematic. Um, from things like the, the comment at the second debate about to the Proud Boys saying, stand, stand back, stand by, um, which was understood by them to be a mm. call to arm, to the, the sort of the speech that set up the strike on the Capitol on January 6th. So, um, you know, there are many people who have devoted their entire professional mind to understanding the former president and his words and actions. I'm not one of those experts, but I can tell you that they are received, those statements are received by white power groups as green lights for action and violent organizing. Um, and we also know that events like January 6th, the historical record tells us, are not one-off events. Um, that is understood as a act of kind of performative public activism. Um, and we see these groups immediately reaching into the mainstream afterward. Now, just to clarify, let me, let me back up and clarify what I'm talking about. January 6th is sort of the collision of white power organized militant right groups. Right. One stream. QAnon, which I think nobody understands very well, second stream, and sort of the, the Trump base. And the Trump base is the biggest group there. It probably has some variation between people who came out for a free speech action 
to people who came out hoping to do something, right? But we do know that the organized white power movement and militant right, those are the guys you saw moving through the crowd in tactical vests with radios, with plans. And they immediately, the day after, were reaching into those Trump Stop the Seal groups on social media to recruit. It is a recruitment action. So what we have to ask is what comes next. Wes, I'd, I'd love to get your perspective uh, on that, but I also want to ask. Wait, I want to ask you a question, Wes. You know, answer that question as well. But I want to ask you if you had organized an Our Black Party event and it somehow got out of control, and you guys had, you know, gone up to the Capitol, what would have happened? We would have been killed. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, buts about it. Black folk, if we would have organized in the same manner in which uh, members of this alt-right white supremacist, these white supremacy groups. There's no other way to describe them. If we would have went to the Capitol and breached the Capitol in ways and manners in which these individuals did on January 6th, mm -hmm. we, there would have been massive bloodshed. There, there's just no other way to describe that. And that shows the hypocrisy of America in some regards. But I also want to speak uh, very briefly to and, and show some love to officers who worked at the Capitol. I've since been at the Capitol in terms of protest. Um, I was a part of a first group of individuals to go inside the Capitol since January 6th for a peaceful protest demanding voting rights. And speaking with those officers, what they went through on January 6th was beyond traumatic. Many of them risked their lives and put their lives on the line, and some of them lost their lives. And I, and I really think we need to support them and show them love for the bravery in which they showed to defend our democracy. However, make no mistake about it, if black folk would have done what those white or largely white individuals did, we would have been commanded to be shot and killed on the spot. There's no denying that. So let's be clear. I'd like to disagree or, or just offer a, a different sentiment in regards to Kathleen's comments for, for just a brief moment, specifically as it pertains to uh, 45, specifically stating that there are fine people on both sides. Well, it may, while it may seem or can be debated, he was, it was misinterpreted in terms of him saying that notion. I can just tell you and attest personally that when right. he called the city, after, you know, everything happened, his comments were not about, uh, are you all okay? Um, man, there was good people on both sides. His initial concern was, why do you keep calling me 45 on television? Right. And I wish you all would have done something different. He's a very selfish individual. He knew exactly. He's a smart guy. Mm. This guy knew exactly what he was saying when he talked about they're smart people or nice people on both sides. He knew exactly what he was saying when he described and told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. He knew exactly right. uh, what he was doing on January 6th, that he was trying to uh, get individuals riled up to go and do exactly right. what they did. And he relished in all of this. Yeah. He relishes in chaos, and he's, by and large, a white supremacist. For okay. Can I just say one more get thing? Really fast, really fast. Seconds. We're right at the end, yeah. Really quickly, I think it is up to us as Americans, and I, I call myself a true American because I love this country and arguably black people were here before, arguably before anyone else outside of the Native Americans. Right. We all have an obligation to ensure that our country is made a better place. And because we have that obligation, it's important for right. us to understand that we come in different facets. Just as easy as yeah. I could wear this shirt paying homage to the Black Panthers, someone could misinterpret that. People misinterpret what they want to. Right. They learn and educate themselves on what they want to. It's time for all of us to educate ourselves on what's right, and that's specifically for fighting for equity. So white right. people use your privilege. Black people in marginalized groups use your power, and thank, let's make this place a better one. Thank, thank you, Wes. Kathleen Ballou, professor of U.S. history at the University of Chicago, and Wes Bellamy, chair of the political science department at Virginia State University. Thank you so much to both of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. So what's the bottom line? 
For many Americans, the rawness and the reality of racial discrimination are in their face. They feel it every single day. For others, it's the exact opposite. They can spend their lives enjoying the privilege and access that their skin color gives them. And some of them have close to zero awareness of the victims of this equation. And still others, they're consciously, purposely, actively working to promote white supremacy. They want racism to be great again. But being unaware is not an acceptable excuse anymore. Silence helps this underground network of white nationalism grow deeper and deeper. This problem is real, folks. The former city council member of Charlottesville is right. This will be a marathon, even though it should be a sprint. Injustice and racism really shouldn't have a place at America's table. And that's the bottom line.